Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This series contains references to death and trauma associated with the Canterbury earthquakes and may be upsetting to some listeners. Well, on the big day, I was sitting at my desk at my office. We've got a law firm situated on the sixth floor of Forsyth Bar House, corner of Colombo and Armagh. This is Grant Cameron, who heads up a commercial litigation firm. I guess people would regard it as being one of the more modern buildings at 17 storeys and one of the two or three larger high-rises. And um, I was in the middle of a meeting with one of my associates. So there he is sitting on the other side of the desk and I think we were actually debating client bills. (laughs) So one of their favourite topics, of course. So right at that moment, a quake hit and instantly we knew what it was. He hears the sounds of screaming and bookcases falling down. Tremendous noise. As I'm glancing out through the um, glass window, I could see my wife, who's the practice manager, standing there. And it was a rather religious, surreal moment because she was standing with a light shining on her face and the clouds of dust whirling around her. So you could only see the face with her eyes wide open and mouth aghast and it happened so quickly you couldn't quite comprehend where this dust was coming from, what all the noise was other than hey this is really really bad. People run to Grant's end of the office. There's a big boardroom next door and it makes sense to gather there. I was whistling for staff to come, as I say there were a lot of screaming probably even then, a lot of tears. But there's a bigger shock to come. One of my solicitors came in, he's about six foot four He had his shirt all hanging out, and he said, my God, I was in the toilet. (laughs) He said, what the hell? He said, you won't believe it. Again, that expression of absolute astonishment on his face. He said, the stairs have gone, and none of us had twigged to this. And I said, you're kidding? He said, no, they've gone. He said, "Uh, I bloody near died because half the landing has gone with them. So it transpired that he'd been in the toilet, he'd opened the toilet door and in that moment the lights in the toilets were still on and shone onto the landing and he realised half of it had gone and as he was having to go around the wall to open the internal doorway back into our premises, the lights went off in the toilet and he was sort of perched on the edge of a six-storey chasm. Grant rushes to check on the women's toilets on the other side of the building and with a couple of colleagues, they put their shoulders to the door to clear rubble that's fallen in the way. They finally get the door open. And you could see this gaping hole, 17 storeys high, and the whole lot had just descended into the basement. So if you look down, you had this chasm where you could see two or three floors disappearing into blackness. And if you looked up, you could see other astonished people standing in doorways like me looking down and you could see upwards for two or three 
uh, floors and then blackness again. So now we've got 17 stories of people trapped. What do we do? Well, I was working at a place called A Free House, which is in Richmond. Annie Smith is a group educator. She's been running a parenting course and she and her co-facilitator are just having a chat about how it's gone. And then all of a sudden the room started shaking um, and it was really, really frightening. I remember getting thrown across the room and my co-worker shouted at me, take cover, get away from the windows. That's what I remember her shouting. So I grabbed the chair, which was the only thing in the room at that time, and I sort of tried to squeeze my body underneath it, which must have been hilarious. And I turned my head up, and as I looked up, the whole ceiling just split. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh. I, and I could see all the wires and everything underneath and the pink, pink bats, and the whole time just shaking, shaking. And it seemed like that went on for a long, long time. Uh, and then it stopped and it died down and I could feel my body shaking and my co-worker shouted to me who was across the room, are you OK? And it was like, gosh, yep, that was a biggie, wasn't it? Annie starts looking around the old house and suddenly she's noticing all the cracks and the bits where the plaster is coming off. It was just awful. We were upstairs and it was a great rickety staircase and we all there were four of us at this stage and we looked at each other going, do we try and get down? And it was like, yeah, but take a mad run for it in between aftershocks, which is what we did. They get downstairs in about three or four minutes and head for the park outside. And right before our eyes, the whole park just erupted into pools of mud in front of us because we were outside and that was the liquefaction coming up. And then she thinks about her family. I suddenly realised, oh my God, I've got to get into town. My daughter goes to school in the central city. It was like, that's what I have to do. So I said to my co-worker, look, I have to go. And she said, yes, yes, of course you do, of course you do. I'm Katie Gossett, and this is Fragments, first-hand accounts of the February 2011 earthquake. These interviews recorded just a few months after the earthquake are personal stories, but also pieces, fragments of a bigger narrative, how Christchurch copes when disaster strikes. And for many people, these accounts are of movement, leaving town or travelling into town, moving to find family, children, partners, or simply to escape and get out of whatever situation they find themselves in. I didn't want the kids to see what had happened in town. I didn't want them to see if there were any bodies. That wasn't fair on them. But as we started to get closer to home, I started to really get this fear and this, this serious knot in my stomach. You can sort of tell the people who have done stuff because they stand out because they've got big eyes. What do you mean people are dead? They can't be dead, my daughter's in there. And it was unanimous, let's get out if we can. Episode 5, The Journeys. For us, I guess, it started the night before. We had a meeting scheduled for, I think, about 2 o'clock on the, on the day. Alistair Rance is visiting Christchurch from Invercargill. Three of us arrived into town the night before. There's John, Ian and I, for different reasons, ended up in Christchurch, so as we always do. Made sure we caught up with each other, a couple of quiets. Next morning, woke up all terribly hungover. And we had one of those mornings that you just waste. They check out some shopping malls and then head into the CBD just before midday to get some lunch before their meeting. So we're driving down Gloucester Street, found a park, 
was great, pulled in, and we'd just driven past, was that, what's that big glass atrium area with the um, crab tracks running through off Gloucester Street? Cathedral Junction, a closed-in glass atrium with shops on either side of the tram tracks. We're just walking in, and there's a rumbling. And we're beside the tram tracks, yeah, tram. And, whoa, there's something wrong with that tram, so I start looking around, turn and look at John, and, and then you know, oh, earthquake, aftershock. And your sort of first reaction is, pretty cool, you know, they, they have these things here, this is nothing new, and I'm not going to look like a dick, so no worries, aftershock. At the same time, you're also very aware there's nothing but glass and steel over your head, and there's nothing around you to jump underneath, so a bit concerned. I turn and look at John, and we meet eye to eye, and he just turns and runs. Oh, oh shit, if he's running, I'm running. Alistair takes off after his friend but can't catch him, and then suddenly there's a woman in his path. And it's kind of weird because, you know, you can see her, you know she's there, so you're trying to avoid her, and you bloody can't, so... We crashed and both went down pretty heavily. Get up, keep running. Oh shit, I can't. Because um, I've knocked her down. I have to go back and get her. Grab her, sort of keep your arm around her on the, on the way out. Get out onto the street. And you have that bit of relief, like you're all here. Wow, that was, that was pretty freaky. And it's then you sort of start soaking in. Just, this is not normal. This is, something's wrong here. There's dust in the air. The dust was probably the biggest one because it shouldn't be dust. So we all sort of look at each other again then and the laughter dies away. Alistair and his friends want to get out. They're about to leave the CBD. And then... The only sort of thing that clicks is there's a woman over on the opposite corner trying to push this lump of timber off a car. Sort of stop. You know, everything slows down and you go, oh, Jesus. And the thought that went through my head was, I'm going to go home. And my youngest son, Scotty very inquisitive, is going to ask me, well, Deb, you know, what did you do? I can't go home and say I did nothing. Well, we were on a trip to the museum, our whole class was, and we had just been to the art gallery to have lunch because it was a really wet day. Eva Rewiri is just 10 years old. And we were walking back past the art centre. And... When the quake hit, first we could hear lots of noise and rumbling and things, and then it hit us, and we all, our teacher was telling us to get down into a turtle, and you could hear lots of bricks falling off buildings, and you could hear lots of cracks forming, and there was lots of dust coming from the ground. Eva worries that the buildings themselves will tumble down. One of my friends, she ran across the road. Yeah, she thought it was going to fall down. Lots of them were really scared. Some people cried and we saw lots of people running out from the art centre because they were in the shops and things. The children move away across the street in case an aftershock brings the buildings down. There was another big aftershock but luckily it didn't fall down and so we went into the car park and in the car park we sang some songs. Um, we sang our school song, it's called The Mariho Way, and we sang Bubbly and other songs like that. They're singing while they wait for their bus to collect them. On that day, the high schools had got out early. Teachers are having a union meeting down at the town hall. This is the bus driver, Anya Hansen. I picked up, I think it was Shirley Boys, teachers, and I just dropped them off at the town hall, and I had about an hour to sort of kill, so to speak, um, before I had to pick up the children down at the museum. 
she decides she'll go grab a cuppa before heading to the pickup point. So I just got into Gloucester Street. I was right next door to the library and all of a sudden everything just started shaking and there were buildings coming down, glass was just shattering over the bus, people screaming. It was just pretty horrendous actually. For a while, she just sits in the bus while people run in every direction. Then she drives up to the corner of Colombo and Gloucester Streets, adjacent to Cathedral Square. Most of the buildings had come down on the road, so I couldn't go straight ahead, look to the right, and Cathedral had come down, and people were just running. Look to the left, and where my bus was going to be parked, the whole building had just come down on the bus stop. So I was thinking to myself, that was a real lucky escape. The damage means she can't go back and get the school teachers from the town hall. But she is still due to pick up the group of school children from the Canterbury Museum. Cars were just, just everywhere. Uh, it, nobody was going to let you around. And of course people were just running and screaming and I really didn't want to run anyone over. So it took probably about 10 minutes and about a 20 point turn and finally got the bus round. And what would normally be five minutes to the museum takes her almost half an hour. And there's this lovely gentleman standing there in this nice bright yellow fluorescent jacket saying, are you looking for some school children? Yes, actually I am. <laughs> would you know where they were? My work is on Gloucester Street, so kind of right across the road from the farmer's building. Pretty central. Victoria Dowsing works at Skillwise, an organisation that offers learning opportunities for adults with intellectual disabilities. She's just about to start her afternoon session and is chatting with a colleague when the quake hits. So we kind of held hands and kind of braced ourselves against, um, against a wall, really, and it went for a long time. <laughs> they watch a photocopier bounce across the room and a vertical fish tank begin to tumble over. I just remember this forever, seeing it fall... Over. I was like in slow motion and then it smashed and then you know, water and fish kind of went flying. Victoria focuses in on the fish, aware that they're very special to her clients. I got it in my head that I had to pick up the fish because I didn't want the clients to, to stand on them and get upset. So I picked them all up and I put them in a rubbish bin. And then later, oh, I don't know what I was thinking, but I felt horrible that the fish were in a rubbish bin, so then I had to go and I took the bin and I went into the staff room. I had to climb over the fridge and find a bowl in the cupboard and I put all the fish in a bowl and then tried to fill it with water, but there wasn't any water because we lost the water, so then I borrowed someone's water bottle and filled that up and then I carried the fish back and left them in the reception. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. I thought I could save them. The noise of the earthquake is deafening, and when it stops, all Victoria can hear is screaming. She and her colleague try to decide what to do. It was hard to tell how how bad it was. Like, you know, the, the roof hadn't come in or anything. Like, and we were we didn't have any windows around us, so we, we couldn't see outside. So it was really hard to gauge how bad it was. So um, she said, "We need to get out." A block away, Grant Cameron's having the same thought. But how do you get off the sixth floor without stairs? On the east side of the Forsyth Bar building, there are three storeys of car parks that jut out from the main tower. And I thought, yep, we could break a window, we could probably get out of here if we had to, but what are we going to use as ropes? 
Grant estimates the distance they'd have to abseil is about nine metres, and he's game to try it, possibly using long electrical cables. But then someone from the next-door tenancy, the Ombudsman's office, gives him another option, a civil defence cabinet, but no-one knows what's inside. So we opened it, and to my astonishment, there were several coils of rope and many pairs of gloves, brand new, for dealing with ropes. There was a sledgehammer, uh, which was very useful for breaking a window, of course. I was very confident now that we could get people out if there was any fire. The question was whether or not we should go. So I hopped in my car on the side of the road. Annie Smith has made a decision, and she's on her way into town, against the flow, to find her daughter. And by that stage, the liquefaction, if you could imagine, it's like, it's mud, but it's water mud. And as I stepped into the car, the mud all around the car was just, like my clothes that I was in, was just mud up to here. And um, Started the car and drove down this little side street, swerving um, the flood that was coming up around me. She hits a main road, Stanmore Road, and the traffic's completely gridlocked. And I swear only ten minutes had passed at this stage. So people had obviously all panicked, and I'm just sitting in the car thinking, what do I do? I've got to get into town. Any figures the fastest way in will be on foot. She pulls over, parks her car, and starts walking through the cracked streets. And people around were just... In shock, really. That wasn't even emotion at that stage. I remember people just walking around dazed, and I was dazed, and traffic jams, and people were winding windows down. I can remember one man going to me, "What, what happened?" Like this, you know, just shocked. He couldn't comprehend what what happened. So I'm half running, half walking to try and get into town. I'm in a skirt, little summery jandal shoes, covered in mud. But the realisation of what's happened in the central city is beginning to sink in. On the sixth floor of the Forsyth Bar building, Grant Cameron and his colleagues have been trying to decide whether to abseil from their floor or wait to be rescued. And then a colleague delivers some sobering news. Now he was situated on the northeast corner of the building, and from his office we could look to the north and just between the PwC building and... Uh, the river or beyond the river, we could see the collapsed PGC building. So it's quite plain a lot of people must have died, and um, so there's no illusions as to how bad this quake was. Then they turn and look to the southeast. We could see a lot of uh, smoke pouring out from uh, one location, which later proved to be the CTV building. And by this time, we'd had one or two really nasty aftershocks, so people very, very upset. Well, do you want to stay here and hope that we might be rescued sometime, or shall we attempt to get out ourselves? And it was unanimous, let's get out if we can. Three blocks from the Forsyth Bar building, on the other side of Cathedral Square, is the BNZ building at 129 Hereford Street. Liz Murray is on a phone call when the earthquake strikes. And I was still on my chair, but I could go nowhere, so I sort of held on to the desk and thought, OK, here we go, this is quite a big one. The earthquake stops. She switches into the bank's normal evacuation procedures, helps a colleague, escorts a customer to the door and then steps outside herself. That's when it hit me because I remember standing outside in this alien landscape on the corner of Hereford and I think it was Colombo and the whole area there and I remember looking to the left and 
I couldn't see down Hereford Street because it was just dust. And there was people crying and standing and staring, just staring off into space. And and ANZ across the road was no longer ANZ across the road. It was ANZ literally across the road. So the street was just full of paper and, and a bit like, you know, something you'd see off TV if a bomb had gone off. And there was a bus in the middle of the street and it looked like something had fallen on it and a car in the middle of the street and the ground had opened up. So I sort of walked outside and went, OK, this is serious. This is not good. She thinks immediately of her family and how she's going to get to them. The only thing I could think about that whole time when I was standing outside was, I need to walk. So I went back inside and all I wanted was my gym shoes and my mobile phone, which was on charge. So I grabbed my phone and my gym shoes. I didn't care about bags, keys, money, any possessions. That's all I wanted. The staff gather by the chalice, a large artwork in Cathedral Square. But then parts of the cathedral start to fall. So as a group, we were trying to stand on the cathedral ground and it was just moving. It was like an ocean. It was, yeah, it was almost beautiful, but not. Liz tries to phone family, her mother and her husband Chris, but she can't get through. And then her phone rings. It was Chris. And he said to me, gosh, that was a big one, wasn't it? And I just said to him, you've got no idea. You need to go. You need to get to Cameron. You need to get to Cameron now. So he sort of went, what's wrong? What's wrong? I said, look, there's dead people. There's people trapped. You need to get home. Please get home. Liz gathers up two of her workmates and together they set off to head east. We started to walk up Gloucester Street and I just remember walking up the street and thinking, right, I've got to get home. What's home going to be like? And I guess your mind is a terrible thing. Uh, I was trying to hold it together, of course, but looking down alleyways and there'd be rubble and bits of beds and you could see people trying to get people that are trapped out of cars and... You know, there's some real heroes in the world, but I guess I'm not one of them. My main focus was to get home. I went into the emergency kit and got a torch so that I could shine it on the floor to show the clients that, to climb over the, the fish tank. Mm-hmm. And they were kind of shepherded down the stairs by, by other staff. Further up Gloucester Street at Skillwise, Victoria Dowsing and her colleagues have made the decision to leave their building. Somehow they need to get a hundred clients to safety. I was very conscious of the fact that all our clients were kind of milling about on the street. And we have a few who are kind of AWOL risks, and I could kind of see two of them going in opposite directions. So I quickly kind of ran after them and kind of gathered them but no one really knows where to go. I don't know who started this, but everyone started walking down Gloucester Street towards the river. I don't know if we were told to go there or that was just another staff member's kind of good thinking. So, um, yeah, we all went down and we kind of just milled at the end of the street, so on the corner of Gloucester and Oxford Terrace there for a while. I remember getting to a main road, Gloucester Street in town, and walking up Gloucester Street, and by this stage, I had left the suburban traffic, I guess, and I was hitting the central city, and and it became really terrifying because all the people from the CBD were coming out of town, and it felt like I was the only person going in, and it was just, as I'm walking in, and I said to one man... I said, there's been an earthquake, it's, it's horrible, you know, but I have to get into town. He said, well, don't bother, you know, you can't get in because buildings have collapsed and people are dead. And I just stood there in the middle of the road and burst into tears. And I went, what do you mean people are dead? They can't be dead, my daughter's in there. 
she rushes on up the street. It was like you lost focus of anything other than what, what I was trying to do. So all that mattered was that um, I needed to find my daughter. That was my centre attention. So everything around me was, you know, people crying and people hurt. As I walk up Gloucester Street and I get closer into the CBD and there's more and more people and the panic is much more extreme than what it was. Anya Hansen has driven up Gloucester Street the other way. So he directed me over to the Arsene's car park. She's arrived at the Canterbury Museum looking for the kids she's supposed to pick up, but she gets more than she bargained for, literally more children than she can handle. Sitting there on the ground, we're just, just uh, about... 80 or 90 children and some of them had some minor injuries and the teachers and the parents that were with them were just awesome. I had the kids singing and keeping them calm and so I went back to the bus and I tried to find out if there was another bus that was close by because it was a job that required two buses initially. Uh, of course everything was chaos, nobody could get anywhere near town. Those that were in town were pretty much stuck. So I uh, went back to the teacher and I said, well, basically I'm it. Let's pile them all on and see what we can do. Eva Rewari is one of the kids who squeeze on board. We all had to cram into the bus, all three classes, and there was about 101 people in the bus, where the usual limit is 40. And it was really squishy. So we shoved kids through to a seat with an extra kid on top. Well, I was sitting quite close to the back and um, some people had to sit like four people squished into a seat with other people sitting on their knees and that kind of thing. But luckily it was only three people squished into a seat where I was sitting. And we just managed to squeeze all the kids just in the aisle and everywhere and we finally set off. We all crammed in and then um, the bus took a really long time to get back to school. I wasn't too sure if the wheels were actually going to make it. It was so heavy. And basically what we do is we set off and the roads were just so bad. They were cracked and trying to figure out, OK, where am I going to go? I didn't want the kids to see what had happened in town. I didn't want them to see if there were any bodies or anyone with, you know, that wasn't fair on them. So I chose the best route that would kind of keep us away from the sort of town area. But Alistair Rance is in town, and for him there's no avoiding the devastation the earthquake has wrought there. He finds himself trying to help. So a lady's trying to push Timber off her car, and she's calling out, um, the sort of, you know, hey, we're here, we're with you, your sort of stuff. So you go, right, somebody in the car. Start trying to rip the doors of the car open. Of course it's about this half the ground now. And... Again, your brain's not quite working because you're sort of looking in the car and I can't really see anything. Then it clicks that there's nobody in the bloody car. You've got the doors open. It's the other side of the car. And there's a bloke already beavering away there. So, right, get round the other side. And you sort of look round and there's, there's just rubble. It's just stuff. And you, go, you, know, you don't know where to look. You know, sort of, he's working over here, so no worries. And you start just throwing. And hoping like hell you're, you're in roughly the right place. Um, so, yeah, you sort of just, any, anything you can find, you're hiffing. And a bit of cloth. Oh, shit, OK, good, we've got, she's here. Gradually, they're moving the debris away from the woman. She was really lucky. When the wall had come down, she had been sort of covered by the window. 
she was within the window frame and the glass was safety glass. So we sort of just rolled it up and there she is. She was directly in front of me, so it was quite easy just to get my hands under her shoulders and, and just lift. And all I had to do was turn and there was um, two guys there. They were sort of all sorted, arm around one um, and then got the arm around the other one. And then she sort of started screaming. Because when you think, yeah, you've got this person, you think, hey, something good, this is a good thing. We've got, this is, yeah, this is great. And she starts pointing and screaming. And again, brain not working that well. She's something about baby. And, oh, fuck. You're really happy you've done something good. And you go, oh, God, there's somebody else. And again, your brain's not working because a couple of the guys have been trying to come around the side to get stuff away. And um, the bloke who was there first said, no, nah, no, there's somebody under there. So you sort of know there's somebody there. And again, you look down and you go, oh, I, can't, I can't see where somebody can be here. And it's sort of weird because the rubble might have been yay high. There's the old big beam. Um, it's sort of hard to picture how somebody can be under there and that you can't see them. But they start digging away. There are five of them working on it now. There's a bloody big beam. It's across the car and sort of almost into the building, it feels like. So we get it moved. I can see his knee and the, and the rubble and stuff, and we have to get this out of the way. And then the guy on that end just lets it go. What? And he, not his exact words. Um, and oh shit. Oh, what do we do? Look, we have to get this moved anyway, so some more guys um, start pushing. We get the beam out of the way and then we can see him. One of the things you sort of expect is that people should be flat. Yeah, you, you assume, you know, running out of a building, you get knocked over. He come out and the building comes straight down. And you look at him and go, it's just all wrong. You know, he, he would fit in a space this big. And the parts are all wrong. You know, you know your head's not supposed to lie over like that. And there's, it's just wrong. And you're so under-equipped. And you're looking at this little thing. And that's the other thing that comes out. People are so fragile. And you're looking and going, need help. So you've got yeah, this little pocket of person and it's all bent out of shape and it's all wrong. And you sort of stand up and go, right, we need help here. And looking down the street. Alistair is desperate to see an ambulance or find someone who knows first aid. And sort of as you're looking, you know there's nobody coming. It's just a waste of land. You know, everything's broken. If there was a bloody ambulance, it can't get there. So it's just you, the people around you, and this poor thing in front of you. And there's nothing. You know, I mentioned, right, should we pick him up? Should we move him? Somebody said, no, you'd probably make it worse. I mean, you know, okay, somebody's taking the pulse and he can't get a pulse. And you know, you're stuffed. And um, about a minute later, there's a, a cop come up and says, look, we need help. We need to do something here. This, this guy's no good. And the guy says, boys, uncover him and walk away. And all the things you want to hear. And ain't it? Ain't it shit. So we sort of moved to the stuff and just, oh. About then I looked up and um, Ian and um, John are in the middle of the intersection. So I um, went to see them and says, right, you know, what are we doing, guys? We knew Ladham Square was down that way and one of the guys says, look, let's head down to Ladham Square. That's where everybody's going. 
Latimer Square has been turned into a triage unit by ambulance and medical staff. You can sort of tell the people who have done stuff because they stand out because they've got big eyes. You can see the adrenaline's running, they don't close their eyes because you get the picture that if they close them they're going to see what they've seen, so they don't want to do that. I get to a big park, Latimer Square I think it is, which is a big green area in Christchurch and there's just hundreds of people milling around. Annie Smith, still looking for her daughter. And I'm going, I'm, I'm not hysterical, I feel hysterical inside, but I'm not hysterical, I'm just walking around almost numb going, I'm looking for a school, there's a school, Discovery One, where's the school? And people were saying, oh no, there's no school, there's no one in town. And no one seems to know where the students have gone. It's just over an hour since the earthquake. I can remember I just walked around and around this park thinking, where do I go, where do I find my daughter? And then I heard my name being called. And it was another mother from my daughter's school. And I just burst into tears with her. <laughs> and we just cried on each other's shoulder. She said, um, it's OK, we'll find them. The two mothers walk around the river. They actually go past the collapsed PGC building. And he has no idea that 18 people have died inside it. It was afterwards I thought, oh my God, you were that close. You could have helped people but you didn't because it was this single focus of just fighting your daughter. Finally someone points them in the right direction. I think it was just through good luck really that we ended up walking all the way around Christchurch and then someone said to us oh maybe they've gone to Hagley Park. After a couple of hours we noticed that people started moving and so we asked people when they were walking past where they were going and they said that they'd been told to go to Hagley Park. Victoria Dowsing from Skillwise has made her way from Gloucester Street with her group of clients in tow. We didn't have a list of who was with us at the time, so it was kind of a matter of memory, trying to rely on the fact that you had everyone that you'd started the day with. Um, and we did start keeping a list of people that were leaving. So, for example, people who had family who worked in the city, you know, they come and collected people, so we'd write down their names. They're just one of many groups drifting through the city, gradually moving towards Hagley Park. I remember the Avon River was very high and it was very dirty and it was running very fast. There was a big patch of liquefaction kind of behind us. Um, and just that there were lots of groups of people, you know, whether they were workplaces or, or whatever. Um, we could see people waving out of the tall buildings. I think it's the, is it the Forsyth Bar building on the corner of Colombo and Armour? Mm -hmm. You know, you can see them up the top waving because I think their staircase collapsed, so they obviously got out, but I don't know how. But the staff at Forsyth Bar are about to find out. So one of the other fellows grabbed the sledgehammer. We broke one of the windows. Grant Cameron and his legal colleagues on the sixth floor are getting out cleared out a, what had been a small office there, just stripped it bare. We got a, a right-angled typist desk, which we then jammed into a doorway so that when we put weight on one end, the other end would dig into the wall and it you know, braced itself brilliantly. So we had this thing that you could actually put your feet on and work ropes across. So John from the Ombudsman's office had been a mountaineer in his youth. And he said, look, I know how to tie the ropes properly so they won't slip. And we've got enough ropes, so why don't we put two on each person? Then, you know, obviously we've got one breaks for any reason, we've got a safety rope. 
And it was a question then of who goes first. They find some matting to drape over the edge of the drop-off. We'd smashed all the glass out, but just in case there was any sort of glass left in the, the ledge, it wasn't going to damage the ropes. And uh, we grabbed one of the solicitors, who was fairly small of stature, and said, right, you're number one. Elsewhere, help for the stranded workers is also on its way. They basically went out to the staff and said, hey, this is going to be reasonably large. We need to get our act sorted. This is Tim Smith, who you met in episode two, owner of Smith Crane and Construction Limited. He asks his workers to call their families, check they're OK. As soon as you've got them sorted, well, we're going to need, need you somewhere. I'm not quite sure where that's going to be just yet, but as soon as I know that, I'll be in touch. So uh, load up some man cages, which is platforms that you use for putting people in, get them loaded onto the back of some of the small trucks and uh, get the cranes all full of fuel and ready to rock. But back at Grant Cameron's law firm, they have no idea how long it might take for help to come. So they're helping themselves. The first solicitor is about to go over the top. We duly tied two ropes to him. He was quite keen to get out of the building, so he had no reservations about this, and he was over the side. So I was standing in the window, more or less guiding the ropes over this cushion. And as I'm doing it, to my astonishment, I look into the road and there's a TV camera. Now, <laughs> we got a lot of TV coverage, as you may know, out of this whole event. And I'm pretty sure one or two lawyers in town might suspect that I organised the earthquake so I could get on TV again. But nevertheless, <laughs> there it was. It was just bizarre. So uh, Jay got down, undid the ropes himself, and then it was turning to, we had about 17, 20 people there. Who's next? And you could almost see people draw back. And my wife, uh, as I say, the practice manager, said, well, I'm out of here. And she just stood up, went straight up, <laughs> tied the ropes on. I was quite surprised that she had the courage. And she picked me on the cheek, and then she was over the edge and gone. And the system with two ropes, with two guys operating each rope, worked extremely well. And we started to just work through the process. Around the same time, cranes are beginning to be deployed around the city. Tim Smith. So then we just sort of started trying to feed them all to the various sites where we thought we would need it most. One being the PGC building. So we had one machine call in there and start lifting people down with a man cage probably, oh, I don't know, probably an hour after the quake, I suppose, maybe two hours after the quake. And then we had one go to the CTV building. Things weren't looking too good there. And so we were there for a short amount of time, but there was a large fire in the lift shaft. So it wasn't much point staying. So that machine packed up from there and went to Forsyth Bar building. So we managed to split all the crews up, so we had some of our senior people sort of running around trying to find out which is the best crane for each job. And we have all different cranes with all different length booms, so the higher the building, the longer the boom needs to be. So it was a bit of sort of chaos trying to sort out which machine goes where and where the biggest demand was. So I was trying to sort of be a bit of the balancer on trying to make decisions on where everything went. Because not everyone's keen on the rope option. Grant Cameron has one colleague who was badly unsettled by the previous big quake in September 2010 and is now reluctant to abseil down. On the east side wall, or where the parapet was, if I could call it that, I got her to face me and this was what I was doing with each of the people. So having been tied with yeah, the respective ropes, they really had to put their arms around my neck and then clamber up onto the edge, sort of side on, and then we could slip them over backwards. It was really the only sort of practical way to do it. 
Well, she got there, and of course, I'm saying don't look down. So she looked down, panicked, and that was it. She wasn't, yeah, you know, she just couldn't do it. But with no real expectation of rescue and their concerns about the building, she can't stay there. And so they try again. And I got her this time to put her arms around my partner's neck and we got, we'd had the ropes tied up and myself and the fellow had been in the toilet, then grabbed her like a plank and we just picked her up and we just ran her out the window. And of course she was starting to scream and protest but by the time half of her was out, over she went and she was sliding down the side of the building before she knew it. Unfortunately, the very largest aftershock hit, and I think inside, though everybody just clenched the ropes and froze, and I think a lot of us felt that if the building was going to come down, it was then. But it doesn't. Grant's colleague sways like a pendulum on the side of the building and then makes it safely to the car park. And then there are four. So what was going to happen? We've got John, uh, the 63-year-old mountaineer, Sean, who would have been in his uh, yeah, early 30s and a fairly slim build. Grant, who was bloody, what, close to 120 kilos at that stage. And David, who's the six foot four character I've spoken about. So we decided to send David down the side. And just before he went, I said to him, well, how heavy are you? He said, 94 kilos. So over he went. And I could tell the, the guys operating the ropes now were struggling with that weight. So I said, well, <laughs> I'm going to be the one staying because there's no way that you're going to cope with 120 kgs. Um, so there was a fairly liberal debate, shall we say, and John finally won out. He said, no, we need two of us to lower you, and we can do that, and I can certainly lower Sean, you know, but, um, and being a mountaineer, I can abseil properly out. I know full well how to get myself out. No problems at all. So I finally end up with two ropes around me, get to the edge of the precipice, so called, and I'm not feeling too confident about this, not because of the height, but because I really think these guys can't cope. <laughs> um, and lo and behold, a crane arrives. A fellow called up and said, look, we'll be ready in about 10 minutes. Stay where you are. So off came the ropes. This is great. We're going to get the free ride to the ground. While he's waiting, thoughts turn to his business. Plainly, we weren't going to be back in that building any time soon. And how the hell do you run a law firm when all your files are there and what, what do you do? So we decided to collect the server and any important computers or electronic gear we could. And using the extension cord and the ropes, we were lowering bags and computers and whatnot. So right towards the end, when we thought we covered every conceivable record, Sean looked at me and said, well, what about a beer? <laughs> so I smiled and said, well, what have you got in mind? He said, well, we've got to go home. Why don't we just have a beer in the park? I said, what a good idea. So I clambered round the back into our kitchen area, which was completely black, everything by feel because it was an internal office. Found the fridge, found a pack of Heineken, and the very last um, package lowered was a full pack of Heineken, which went down the side of the building. And then their crane is ready for them. We then, the three of us, end up with this uh, great big cage brought to the window and step out as if you'd get onto a, you know, an elevator and have a palatial ride to the ground. So our, our large crane, a 220-tonner, it went to the Forsyth Bar. Tim Smith, who's been coordinating the movement of cranes around the city. 
I think we lifted 150 or 180 people off in, in man cages. And uh, some of the people are a bit frightened, of course, but I think they're pretty keen to see us. Um, there's people, the odd person clutching a, uh, a server, <laughs> which we found a little unusual. I don't think I'd be too worried about the server in those circumstances. Normally, people travelling in cages wear harnesses, but today there aren't enough of them, and not enough time either. The supervisor tells them... Hang on, if anything goes wrong or there's a quake, just get down and hang on. So the guy in the crane's a bit of a hard shot and he's in a bit of a hurry, so we give it the, give it the jandal, as the boys call it, to um, get the basket nice and fast down to the ground so that... Um, so that we can get up and get another load. And uh, of course, as soon as you've done that, well, <laughs> you won at the floor, thinking it was in free fall, but it wasn't in free fall, it was just all, all, all normal, just a bit faster than normal. Uh, so that was a bit of entertaining. And then I was uh, managed to get home, drop my kids off, and I headed back in. A short distance away, Alistair Rance is also still in the central city. He suddenly realises he should call his wife, Janine. Can't get through on the phone, so he sends her a text. I can't remember what I said that she told me a few days later, which is, we okay, Christchurch fucked. Yeah, that's probably about right. That's, that was good. They walk around the city, wondering if they should help again. But by then, emergency services are in charge of the damaged buildings. Alistair and his friends decide to grab their car and get out. Only car in that area without a scratch on it. You know, everything else is levelled. We can get in the car. Uh, we'll just go down there and somebody says, hey, we can smell gas from clothes in the street. We'll get the car, yeah, get it and go. Get the car, start moving. Um, of course, gridlock everywhere. But again, really cool, you get to intersections and there's some bloke doing his best to direct traffic. How good are, how good are you? You know, absolutely brilliant. So we start, so we won't go main roads, there's no show getting out on those. So we sort of head across through residential areas, get into that area with all the liquefaction. Again, yeah, it's it's misery and bloody just disgusting as aftershocks and so getting through that and here's some person shoveling out their driveway already. Yeah, yeah. Human nature and the resilience of people is amazing. So we started to walk and we turned left to head towards the uh, the river and that's when the silt began and it was serious silt. Liz Murray is also heading away from town. I guess there's some funny moments, but and there's some really bad moments, but I said to the girls when we got to the bridge, we're going to run across every bridge. We're not going to walk, we're going to run. And they said, why? And I said, just in case there's another earthquake, the last place I want to be is on a bridge. And I remember the girls in front of us, you know, they started to run too. So all these people started to run across the bridge. We were stuck in traffic for a long time and cars were going all the wrong ways and everything. Eva Rewari is now on her way back home via school. She's one of more than 100 people on Anya Hansen's bus. So basically we were just, just crawling, and with that many kids on board, of course it started getting very, very hot. So we opened all the windows and said to the teacher, OK, well, look, we'll make sure there's a parent at the back door, parent at the front door, and we'll drive with the doors open. We just had to get some air in there. No, I was so scared that some of these poor little buggers were going to faint. Um, so yeah, basically it, it, it took us about two and a half hours to get back to school. And um, along the way, of course, yeah, we stopped for, you know, while we were stopped, kids would have their little toilet breaks. There was lots of liquefaction on the roads and so the bus had to go through that and we could see lots of like falling down buildings and that kind of thing. And then there are the aftershocks. 
we'd pre-warned the children before we left that if there was going to be an aftershock, that the bus was going to feel like it was going to tip over. We reassured them that it wasn't, it would just feel that way. I think we'd made it to Bailey Ave, which was probably maybe about an hour and 15 minutes later, and I think it was a 5.1 hit. And next night, the bus is just going from side to side. I slammed the doors shut so the parents wouldn't fall out the doors. And I had a car on either side of me. And I was looking at the drivers and just this look of absolute horror on their faces as this bus was coming towards their cars from side to side. They, honestly, they must have thought they were going to be crushed. But thankfully, because the kids were being pre-warned, they were actually very, very good. Of course, they were frightened and, you know, and screaming a little, but, but they were actually awesome. They were great. They kept calm and didn't panic, and we got through that one. They were saying to keep calm and that we would all be OK, and they were saying that everybody was OK at school because it was safer there. I had... <laughs> One little dot who was up next to me and oh she was she was chattering away to me and we were having such a good conversation as we were driving along the road you know and uh, she was telling me all about it and how frightened they've been and hoping that their mums and dads were okay all they wanted was their mum and dad finally the bus reaches its destination two and a half hours later we eventually made it back to the school and um, and parents and caregivers were just you know so grateful just to see their kids. And of course the kids couldn't get off the bus quick enough to see their mums and dads. It was just, just great. When we got back to school, I was really excited to see my mum and my sister and she said that everyone wanted to run over to the bus but they weren't allowed to. And that was really cool. And when we got home, our street had flooded and so we had to like squish along the footpath and there was no toilet, which sucked. As we started to get closer to home, I started to really get this fear and this, this serious knot in my stomach. Liz Murray is worrying about her son Cameron. I wasn't sure where Cameron was, and then I started to question who I was and how good a mother I was. Um, I guess for me, it was, I didn't know where he was. And I didn't know where his classroom was, so I was starting to think, okay, if I get there and he's in school, where do I look? Where will he be? And how come I don't know that? And it was just, it was just I think that was a, a, a very painful moment for me because I was starting to question who I was as a parent. But then I thought, oh, don't be silly, Liz. You know better than that. He's in high school. He changes classrooms. Don't be silly. He could be doing PE. Or I... You know, I don't know where he is, but I know that he'll be okay. She keeps walking and starts to see other pupils from Cameron's school. I stopped one of the boys, I said, hey, what's happened to Shirley Boyd? And they thought, it's really bad. I went, what's wrong, what's wrong? And they said, it's collapsed, it's really, really bad. And I went, okay, and I said, do you know Cameron? And they said, no, we don't, look, we've got to go. And I said, don't go that way, don't go into the city. And they went, no, 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 we've got to go. And I said, okay, so they went, and I thought, oh my goodness, it's collapsed. And Liv turned to me and she said, it's going to be okay. And I said, yeah, I know, but I don't know where he is. And she said it will be fine. And then I remember just walking again, thinking, OK, well, if I don't know what classroom he's in, I'll take the dogs. So I've got two little Jack Russells, and they'll smell him. They'll find him. And wherever he is, and, how, and if he's trapped, I'll dig him out. These thoughts go over and over in Liz's mind. 
I start, I said to the girls, do you think you could run a wee bit? And they went, oh, oh, my feet. And I said, okay, well, we kept walking. I don't know, I didn't really notice a lot that day, to be honest, because I just spent so much of my time kind of making sure that our group were staying together, they weren't wandering. Victoria Dowsing has been heading towards Higley Park, trying to keep her clients happy. Lots of them need to go to the toilet and you're kind of like, well, you know, if you're a boy you can go pee on that tree over there, but otherwise you, you got, the girls just kind of had to hold on. So, um, yeah, we walked down, so it was down all the way down Armour Street and then across the, the Armour Street Bridge into Hagley Park. And I remember along there, because there was another one of those old provincial chamber buildings and that had just kind of exploded onto the street so you had to walk around that. There was heaps of liquefaction like cars. Liquefaction was like up to the door handles. And Annie Smith is also heading to Hagley Park, still looking for her daughter and the other kids from her central city school. I think we started walking down Kilmore Street maybe. It's all a bit of a blur anyway. Came to Hagley Park. And there were trees in Hagley Park that were down like great big huge trees with that had been uplifted all their roots and everything. And um, I can remember saying to this mum, my God, they better not have taken them to their park. You know, just thinking what would they be if they were under a tree. And it was just a matter of going through these crowds of people and finding a school. And we did, we ended up seeing them and I can remember Beforehand, this mum was like, we were both hysterical, hysterical in a quite a calmed way, but, you know, really nervous. And I can remember we walked up to them and they were probably about 200 metres away and we could tell that they were Discovery students. And there's actually two mums, so at some stage we found another mum. This is where it's all very vacant because I remember they were, I was in the middle and I was holding both their hands. And... I can remember us saying, right, we've got to pull ourselves together. For the kids, we need to pull ourselves together. The children from Discovery are playing games. And they were smiling, you know, they were happy. And it was just like, I could feel, you know, we were just squeezing each other's hands like this. And I was like, oh my God, they're safe. And then I saw Natasha and she was down the back and she's at that sort of 11 going on sort of 21 age if you could imagine you know very calm and collected and quite pre-adolescent and she saw me and she just goes like this and then carries on with her game <laughs> and part of me wants to go do you know what I've just been through <laughs> inside I'm thinking do you know what I've just been through and, and you've just raised your eyebrows to say hi um but that was okay, you know, that, that was just the age, which was fine. So I went up to her and I held, held her shoulder and I went, how are you? And she goes, she said, oh, she said, I'm okay, but would you believe there was another shake? They decide to stay on in Hagley Park for a bit longer. And it was funny because at this stage Tish hadn't given me a hug, you know, but that was not, that was not unusual. That was the whole public type thing and the age thing. And then when about probably an hour or so later when we left, we were walking back with another friend and she gave me a little squeeze and went, I'm really pleased that you're here, which was just lovely. But I can't even describe the relief that I felt when I when I actually saw her. It was, I guess for the first couple of minutes after we had seen and we'd smiled at each other through the children, it was the first time that I felt okay again. 
By now, Alistair Rance and his friends are out of town. They've reached Leeston, about 30 kilometres southeast of Christchurch. Find a shop that's open, buy some clothes, toothbrush, toothpaste, bottle store, booze, as much as we can carry. Um, decided we're going down to John's place in Ashburton, grab a feed there. Um, we're heading out to grab food. And it almost becomes surreal then because you're heading into John's home environment and it's, you know, it's, it's, it feels like a sanctuary for one. But it's also a bit weird. You've just come from a surreal disaster that looks like something out of a really bad sort of disaster movie to this. And it's now a TV event. And that's, that's a really uncomfortable thing. The first footage, obviously, coming through. And that's when you know, we saw the corner we were on again. Oh my God. And the worst, there was the worst experience of the whole lot. We need to go, hold on, there's still people there. Oh, what do we miss? It was, it could have been, yeah, there could have been 50 people down the street and go, oh my God, yeah, was, was that guy actually okay? Or was, was there somebody else? And it was only you know, days later, you actually find out and you, again, you rationalise a bit. You know, no, you know, the guy had passed. Which, you know, you think about it and go, well, you know, things like this, you know, the head was lying flat against his shoulder and there's, there's no blood. You know, when we lifted the girl out, there's blood, obviously, because, you know, it's pumping. Him, there's a, just a little bit of crust of blood around the nose. So you rationalise it to yourself to convince yourself you haven't done wrong, if you like. But, you know, it was OK to walk away. So we sat, we drank, we talked, and that's when we started realising everybody had experienced a totally different event. Liz Murray's journey is also drawing to a close. So I live on sort of a bend, and as we came around the corner, it was just, it, it was really, it was quite bad. The road was bad, the silt was bad. And as I came around the corner, my next-door neighbour came out, and she said, Liz, Liz, Cameron's OK. And I said, oh, thank God, thank God. And she said, he's OK. He's been to see me. He's been to see the neighbours across the road, and he's been next door to them. He's fine. And I said, oh, thank God. She said, what a wonderful boy you have. And I said, yeah, you know what I do? Where is he? <laughs> and she said, oh, he's around the corner. And I went, OK. And she said, he's just, he's just helping. So I went around the corner, and there he was, you know, all of 14, hair all beaver-like, <laughs> standing at the corner of the house on a shovel, trying to help this man dig this car out that was sunk in the ground out the front. And I just looked at him, you know, I just, oh, it was the best feeling. It was almost like seeing him for the first time when he was born. And he turned around and he looked at me and he saw me. And he just dropped the shovel and he ran and he grabbed hold of me. I grabbed hold of him and he said, oh, Mum, I thought you were dead. I thought you were dead. And I said, oh, I thought you were too. And then the neighbour came and she hugged us as well. So we were all hugging and we were all crying in the street. And I pulled him away and I said, oh, I... I I'm so proud of you, mate. Oh, I cannot believe that you waited. And he said, I didn't want to wait. I wanted to come and find you. I really wanted to come and find you. I said, oh, thank goodness you stayed. And I'm so glad that you're safe. And he said, oh, the house, the house is munted. The house is really bad. And I said, don't worry. We're fine. We're OK. And then that was pretty much <laughs> the end of that bit. <laughs> Once we're outside Christchurch... You're in a different world. Alistair Rance is heading home to Invercargill. Getting down past Roxburgh, and there's some guys playing golf. And you almost want to get it out, and how can you be playing golf? But you go, what else can they do? Further down, getting down to home, 
hugely emotional turning into your own street. Pull up outside the house, here's my daughter waiting at the door for me, which was, uh, which was really cool. And you sit there and, and sort of, I went, yeah, quick chat to Janine and said, I can't tell the kids this. They don't need to know. In the end, it becomes more of a geography lesson for the kids about how earthquakes work. But for Alistair, the experience leaves a mark. After watching on TV for the next couple of days, I just couldn't anymore. Um, so when the news would come on, I'd just leave the room. You get so wound up in it, um, because when we were digging the guy out, I noticed his, in his wrist, he had this um, a little wristband, and, and Pen had written his nickname on it. And so that gives you a connection to the guy, and you sort of start wanting to find out more, and you know, it's nothing good, you find out, because you know, he's, he's passed, he was one of the first identified. And you just go, no, I don't, I, you know, it's just, you put it away. So um, just sort of really put it away. I think I've talked about it about two or three times to people and told them bits and pieces, but it's not the kind of thing you really, it's not a party topic of conversation. For Anya Hansen, it's the sounds from that day that stick in her mind. The noise, the, the rumble, the thunder, the, the glass, the screaming, it's, it's something that will never, ever leave me. Ten years on, she can still remember it, but she also remembers the children. Looking at their, their frightened faces is probably the one thing that really does stick out for me. That was difficult, I must admit. But we did our best to make it a good trip home anyway. But she's had more going on in her life than the quake. Oh, about three weeks after the quake, I got diagnosed with cancer. So probably about the year and a half from that time, I was probably concentrating more on actually my health and with the chemotherapy and, you know, just... Just working also, I was still doing 12-hour shifts and undergoing chemo at the same time. So I didn't really have a great deal of time to actually think about or even really process about the quakes. But life has been really good, especially in the last two years. I've changed jobs. I'm still driving buses, though. I have a wonderful, supportive partner in my life and... Yeah, so, so life is actually really good now. Anya is thrilled to be able to say she's cancer-free, and she did find the time to think about the day of the quake. That's not to say she doesn't flinch when there's a tremor, and like a lot of people in Christchurch, feels it's only a matter of time until there's another big shock. It feels like a waiting game still, even, even after all these years. It's like you're waiting for, for something bigger to happen. In some ways, Christchurch just doesn't really feel like home anymore. I was born and bred here, but yeah, there, there's still a surreal feeling about it. It's just not home anymore. Anya doesn't feel like the quake changed her much. The cancer more so, she thinks. She received a Christchurch Earthquake Award for her services that day, but doesn't want a fuss made about it. The attention at the time was, was incredibly overwhelming and uh, very surprising that the children initiated it and I didn't want to disappoint the children. But she did appreciate the opportunity in 2011 to talk through the events of the day. It was a good experience for her. Because it's not really something I talk about. Even back then, it wasn't really something that I'd sit down and talk about. I've, I've always been a very humble person, you know, not 
having sort of like airs and graces that I'm better than the next person, you know, because what happened that day or, or my actions that day are, are no less than the person next to me, so to speak. You know, um, I don't consider myself a hero. I knew there was a job that needed to be done and I just went and did it. Grant Cameron can sum up his life since the earthquake pretty quickly. Chaotic in a word, absolutely. We uh, had a very demanding practice before the quakes, but uh, with that series of quakes, the law firm was inundated with people who didn't know where to go, where to turn, what their rights were with insurance parties, and um, we really felt it was impossible to turn people away. So we were just flooded and... In a funny sort of way, I don't think we've felt we've eased off over 10 years. It's been dynamite. It would be fair to say that work that came from the quake has overshadowed Grant's own experience of the day. He doesn't think about it all that much. Probably it's clients or people I run into in the community and they point out, you know, you're one of those people who abseiled down the side of the building that day. And uh, yes, certainly those events are pretty well etched into our memories. We glibly put it down to you know, team building now, but on the day it was a pretty serious event. Uh, but we are forward focused and there isn't much point looking back on those events too closely. Grant's practice was back on its feet within two weeks, which was good because the work was already there and it was complex, dealing with people in great distress. And all of that means little time for self-care or time away from work. Being nose down, tail up for 10 years may have affected his health. It's been very demanding, I think, on my wife. Um, Fortunately, she's been involved in the practice over the years, so has a better understanding of what's going on. But that hasn't necessarily made it easier for her. So it's been uh, a difficult personal sense. Grant doesn't think there's anything he and his staff could have done differently that day in the Forsyth Bar building. Everyone believed the building might collapse in an aftershock. The only answer was to get out, and so they did. But once he was out, the reality of what happened to his city hit home as he walked to a colleague's house. So suddenly the last three of us were rescued. We found ourselves on the street. What now? Where to go? You know, how to get home because the cars are all locked up and jammed in a building. And uh, so we had a very long trek to one of the lawyer's homes and that actually took us through North Hagley Park and a lot of liquefaction. And it was that walk which probably brought home the enormity. It was one thing for our building to suffer the damage it did. But as you walked along Armagh Street, there was liquefaction up to the windows of cars. Cars were almost buried in the liquefaction. The um, lead up to the bridges had all collapsed, so you had to climb a metre up onto the bridge, walk across and then drop down a metre. So the devastation, you had time to pause and reflect on what had actually gone on. And then, of course, your mind turns to, well, where is the rest of the family? I had a daughter at home on Mount Pleasant, not really sure what the position there was. My wife was with me. Unfortunately, our son was in London, but he was on the phone, quick, smart. So, uh, yeah, the devastation, I think, was, you know, sharpen, take a breath. Grant remains critical of the recovery process and thinks more should have been done to stimulate business in Canterbury. 
He'd also like to see better protection of people's rights. We still have people who have not had their insurance claims completely resolved and their ongoing disputes, and that's appalling. We probably all can say we grew a little bit, we learned a lot out of it. We certainly wouldn't want to go through it again. It's a day people in the east of Christchurch will also remember. I just thought, well, I've got to do something here. They're looking at me for guidance. You couldn't see any grass, you couldn't see any track. It was completely covered with water and liquefaction. And I thought, we're going to die, let's die together. It was awful. I thought I'd never see him again. I thought that was it for him. They all stopped to help. And what they gave me was, they gave me back to my family. Those stories next time on Fragments, first-hand accounts of the February 2011 earthquake. Fragments is written and presented by me, Katie Gossett, and co-produced by myself and Justin Gregory. It's engineered by Alex Harmer and Rangi Powick, and Tim Watkin is the executive producer of podcasts and series. Thanks to Julie Hutton and Sandra Close for their work in recording interviews, and to Nate McKinnon for additional recording and video work. We'd also like to thank Grant Cameron, Annie Smith... Alistair Rance, Eva Rewari, Anya Hansen, Victoria Dowsing, Liz Murray and Tim Smith for sharing their personal stories to create this record of the fatal Christchurch earthquake on February the 22nd, 2011. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.